The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Luke 24 in Acts chapter 1. Luke 24, beginning in verse 50, here's what Luke records. He says, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going behold two men in white clothing stood beside them they also said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into the sky this Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. The year was 1982. Someone became famous, at least locally, but unless you lived in Southern California, you probably would have never heard of him. His name is Larry Walters. Larry Walters grew up with a dream of being an Air Force pilot. But poor eyesight killed that dream pretty early in Larry's life. Instead of a pilot, he became a, a truck driver for a career. But his dreams of becoming a pilot never seemed to fade fully into the background of his life. And so one day, as a grown man, as he was walking his way through a Army-Navy surplus store, he saw some helium balloons hanging from the ceiling. And he got a great idea with the assistance of his girlfriend at the time. He purchased 42 eight-foot weather balloons, several tanks of helium, and took them home. He had a, he had a marvelous plan. It included another important piece of, of uh, equipment, a standard garden variety Sears aluminum lawn chair. And his plan was to affix the helium-filled weather balloons to the lawn chair, which was strapped to the earth to secure it. To the lawn chair, he strapped a cooler in which he uh, packed some water jugs to, to serve as a ballast. He packed some sandwiches and some beer and a pellet pistol. 
He did also have a parachute and a CB radio just in case something went wrong. His plan was to, was to, to ascend up into the sky and fly across the Rocky Mountains. He completed his craft and he named it, he named it Inspiration One. To my knowledge, there's never been an Inspiration Two. Now, Larry had calculated in his mind, and clearly he wasn't good at physics or math or aeronautical engineering or anything of the likes, but he intended to ascend to about 30 feet and fly, eating sandwiches and drinking beer across the mountains. What he actually got turned out to be quite different than that. You see, he cut the first uh, rope that was securing him to the ground, and immediately the others popped. Intending to fly only 30 feet or so, he shot skyward at a rate of about 1,000 feet a minute and didn't level off until he got to 16,000 feet. Now you can imagine the shock and the fear and Larry Walters. What I find is, is amazing is that he's still in the chair at 16,000 feet. So he did something right but he realized when he gathered his senses at 16,000 feet that he had some other problems on his hands. He realized immediately he was drifting into the flight path of incoming planes from LAX airport. Worried about the uh, impending doom that that could cause, he used his CB radio to transmit a mayday call, which was eventually picked up by operators on the ground. But he wasn't run over by uh, a commercial airliner, and, and we give thanks to that for that. But instead, he continued drifting, and he was spotted by at least two pilots who were flying inbound to LAX, including one TWA captain who radioed in that he was, quote, passing a man in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet who was holding a pistol in his hands. Can you imagine being in the flight tower to get that call? Immediately the tower fixed its radar on him and began to track him. By this point he gathered up his courage and he pulled out his pellet pistol and he shot out several of the balloons and he began what turned out to be a very slow descent back down to the ground where he 90 minutes after takeoff landed remarkably safely. Well, rather safely. When he got close to the ground the, the lines attached to his weather balloons got caught up in some power lines and killed all the power to an entire neighborhood in the Long Beach area and it left him suspended about five feet from the ground when he dropped down into the arms of the LAPD who obviously were waiting for him and arrested him on the spot the thing that struck me as I read that story was a reporter interviewed him after this and asked him why in the world he would do something so foolish and I loved his answer this is a quote from Larry Walters he said quote a man can't just sit around that's great isn't it you can't just sit around so you strap a lawn chair to some weather balloons and see if you can fly remarkable story it's a miracle it's a miracle that he survived that but he did 
effectively ascend above the clouds and descend back down. But Larry Walters' ascent and descent pales in comparison to the one we read about in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 1. When we see the Lord Jesus Christ ascend into the heavens. If you listen to the radio much in years gone by, you probably heard a, a, a guy that would occasionally come on news radio called Paul Harvey, and he would always tell a story. How many of you know who Paul Harvey is, or you read, remember Paul Harvey? He would tell some, the, the details of some story in history that you knew little bits and pieces about, but then he would fill in pieces that, that you probably didn't know about, and he would say, now you know the rest of the story, right? If you heard him, you know that was his famous line. As I thought about what to, to bring as far as teaching this morning to you from the Word of God on Easter, it, it, I was drawn to the ascension of Christ because it, in a very real sense, is the rest of the story from the resurrection of Christ. It is, in a very real sense, the culmination of Christ's redemptive work. It is a, a critical piece of redemption history that, that the ascension is. And it's a tremendously practical uh, matter as far as application goes as well. And yet it, it gets comparatively very little attention. We give an awful lot of attention to the incarnation of Christ. We, we, we celebrate at Christmas time the birth of Jesus, the, the, the God who stepped out of heaven and, and enveloped himself in human flesh, the God who became man and dwelt among us. We give great attention to that. We re recite the story. We sing songs. There are books written about it. And we celebrate the cross as well. We give great attention to the arrest and to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. And even on a normal Resurrection Sunday, we set aside Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The one who was crucified, who breathed his last breath, who was buried in a borrowed tomb, rose from the dead. The tomb was found empty. He was alive. The resurrection gets a lot of attention. Again, sermons, books, and songs written about it. But the ascension, the ascension of Christ is often treated much like an afterthought. In fact, I, I, I did a little quick search, not an exhaustive one, of, of, of songs or hymns about the ascension. I bet you couldn't re recite, even if you grew up in church, uh, a hymn that you sang that was primarily about the ascension of Christ. Maybe you can think of one. But I bet you can't think of two if you can think of one. I dug around and I did find that there was one hymn written in 2011 in a hymnal somewhere, and the title was Up, Up, and Away. I don't know if we can find that hymn, but I'm really curious as to what it sounds like. But apart from Up, Up, and Away, I can't think of another. In fact, the ascension gets very little attention, really. And it is, in some ways, considered a bit of an afterthought, as though it's not really an important piece of the, the bigger picture of Christ's redemptive work. In fact, not everyone, even among professing, professing Christians, sees the value of the ascension at all. In fact, some are embarrassed by it. I call your attention to a pastor by the name of Don Hutchings, who is the pastor of, of the Holy Cross Lutheran Church, which is right outside of Toronto in Canada. She writes this about the ascension of Christ. She says, the celebration of Jesus' ascension is a church festival that I've always chosen to ignore. 
The ancient tradition that has Jesus floating up into the clouds stretches the credibility of the church to such an extent that I've always assumed that the less said about the ascension, the better. But I was challenged by a parishioner to try and make some sense out of the ascension story so that 21st century Christians would not have to check their brains at the door should they happen upon a congregation that still celebrates that today. What follows, she writes, is a transcript of my attempt to leave behind the miraculous Jesus in order to, better, to be better able to welcome the human Jesus down from the clouds. She goes on to explain to us, lest we become the kind of ignorant fools who actually believe what the Bible says, she says, let me just say that the ascension never actually happened. It's not an historical event. If a tourist with a video camera had been there in Bethany, they would have recorded absolutely nothing. In order for us to move beyond the literal and beyond the historical and even beyond the metaphorical meaning to arrive at the meaning that the story of the ascension can have for us today, in this time and in this place, I'd like to tell you two stories. So let me get this straight. The ascension never happened. It isn't real. She's embarrassed by it because to believe something like that would cause us to check our brains at the door. In order to really understand what the Bible means by that story, you have to move beyond the literal and you have to move beyond the historical. You even have to move beyond the metaphorical. You gotta go behind all that to get some kind of a meaning and the meaning that she's gonna give it results from two stories that have nothing to do with the Bible that she's going to tell. The problem that Pastor Hutchings has is this. To believe that, you have to ignore the pervasive testimony of the Scriptures. Because from cover to cover, the ascension is presented in the Bible as historical fact. For some who don't deny the reality of it altogether, the ascension represents a true challenge to their faith. I was stunned to read uh, author Philip Yancey uh, write this. I've read much of, of his works, don't agree with all of his theology, but have been helped by some of what he's written for sure. But on the ascension, he said this. He said, I've concluded that the ascension represents my greatest struggle of faith. Not whether it happened, but why. It challenges me more than the problem of pain, more than the difficulty in harmonizing science in the Bible, more than belief in the resurrection and other miracles. It seems odd to admit such a notion, yet for me, what has happened since Jesus' departure strikes at the core of my faith. Would it not have been better if the ascension had never happened? If Jesus stayed on earth, he could answer our questions, he could solve our doubts, he could mediate our disputes of doctrine and polity. So for him, the, the challenge is not the fact that the ascension happened. The challenge is the implications of the ascension and what it means. And it's to that end that we'll look at the scriptures this morning and attempt to understand what's taught. Now, the ascension is mentioned all throughout scripture uh, in various ways. It is implied in, in various locations and it is mentioned directly in many places. Luke is the only one who gives us the details of the event in itself that we read at the end of Luke's gospel in the beginning of Acts chapter 1. Now it's mentioned at the end of Mark, but the end of Mark is a bit of a questionable passage, so 
uh, we can say for certain at least that, that Luke is the one who includes the details of the event of the, of the ascension. But he's not the only one who mentions it. Jesus himself clearly understood and anticipated his own ascension. You can tr- we can track this all the way through the Gospel of John. I'll just give you a, a few highlights of, of those passages this morning. Jesus anticipating and thinking about his ascension. In, in John uh, chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and they've been grumbling about something. And he says to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He asks them a question, but it's a rhetorical question. He's cluing them in to something that's going to happen. And in chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I am doing what? I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me and you won't be able to find me. Where I am, you can't come. John 16, again, I'm going to him who sent me. John 16, 28, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And these are just a few examples. Jesus, in in his self-understanding, clearly knew the Father's plan of redemption. And he understood that at the end of the road was his return trip home, the ascension. In fact, you may recall when Jesus is met by Mary Magdalene outside of the, in the garden, outside of the tomb. Do you remember what he says to her as she latches on to him? He says to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You've got to let go, Mary. There's work to be done. I'm heading back to the Father. Now between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, some time passes. Approximately 40 days passes between the empty tomb and the ascension. So what took place between that time frame? What happened? Why is it that Jesus wasn't resurrected and ascended on the same day? A lot took place over those 40 days. Some highlights would be this. He appeared to a number of people, right? Mary Magdalene by the, by the garden, pretty immediately there he appears to her. He appears to his disciples, minus Thomas, on one particular occasion. He appears again to his disciples with Thomas on another occasion. The Bible tells us he appears to Peter. You may recall Peter after the death and resurrection of Christ. What had had Peter gone back to doing? He had abandoned the ministry and he had gone back to fishing. And Jesus meets him there on the seashore, the resurrected Christ. And Peter jumps out of the boat and comes and they share a meal by the seashore and and Jesus has this beautiful conversation with Peter where he asks Peter do you love me and Peter says yes you know I love you and and he says then go feed my sheep and he's he's restoring Peter to the ministry we know that we'll see in Luke's gospel if you come back next week and then the week after that eventually we'll get to the chapter where we deal with the Jesus appearance to two men on the road to Emmaus two men who are walking and Jesus shows up as a a fellow sojourner. They don't know who he is, and they begin to interact and talk together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 3, speaking of Christ, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
So Jesus was busy within those 40 days. He was, he was showing himself to hundreds of people. He was making known and validating his resurrection so that it was crystal clear and that everyone understood precisely what had taken place. And what Christ was doing largely in those days was he was preparing for the launch of the church. He was preparing the leaders. He was preparing the people. He was making sure they understood with crystal clarity what had taken place, that he had died for the sins of humanity, that he had died as an atoning sacrifice for all those who would place their faith and trust in him, and that he was buried and that he was raised and that he was very much alive, that death had been defeated, that the grave was empty, that there was a way to die and yet live, which would mark the heart of the gospel message that the church was to carry. So he's providing them visible proof of the resurrection. He's leaving no doubt or confusion about what's happened. He's shoring up the leaders and he's preparing them to lead the church. And he gathers them together. And in this time frame, he gives them the great commission. He says to go into all the world, right? To go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so for 40 days, this is what Jesus is doing. He's appearing to people. He's disappearing. He's showing up here. He's showing up there. But this is different when we get to the ascension. He gathers his disciples in a very familiar place, the Mount of Olives. And Luke simply tells us, after he had said these things, he was lifted up. He was lifted up. The language there is the passive voice, which simply indicates that he didn't lift himself up, that he was lifted up by someone else. When all this was said and done and he was finished saying what he had to say, he, he was blessing them with a, a, a blessing that would have probably looked similar to an Old Testament blessing. And as he's blessing them, he literally rises from the ground and he, 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 he goes upward toward the sky. He's lifted up. There's a, a ton of ink spilled on trying to explain the significance of him going up. There are folks like Pastor Don Hutchings who say, well, this is clear evidence that this is a, a false story, that it's totally made up. Everybody knows that heaven isn't literally up from the earth. Anybody who's been on an airplane has been on the other side of the clouds and you didn't arrive in heaven something that she would say so what is the significance of him going up is there a reason that he went up well I think there are two good reasons why Jesus chose to go this way why he chose to go up not because geographically if you keep going up you'll eventually get to heaven but because he wanted to do two things first of all he wanted his disciples to know in a very visible and stunning way that this time he was leaving for good he chooses to leave in a way that he hasn't left before. For 40 days he's been appearing and he's been disappearing. He's been showing up and he's been coming back. But he needed them to know now, this is it. I'm going back to the Father. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. He wants to set their expectations properly so that they're not still looking for him to pop back up at any given moment. And I think secondly, he also wanted to show them exactly how he's going to return. Because if you flip to the end of your Bible you'll see that the return of Christ looks an awful lot like the way he ascended. So where did he go? He didn't go into outer space. 
if he didn't fly past Venus and Mars and such, where did he go? He went to heaven. He went to where the Father is. The invisible spiritual world where that exists. To the place that he had come from when he stepped away and was born to Mary in Bethlehem. He returned there. Behind him, the persecution of men. Before him, the the applause of angels. Behind him is the cross. Before him is a crown. Behind him is Calvary. And before him is all of heaven's glory. That's where he went. You say, well, where is that? I don't know. You don't either. So we're fools to speculate. But Christ knew where he was going. We're told a cloud received him out of their sight. These aren't normal clouds floating around in the sky. Like if you were to go outside and see the clouds, you say, oh, look at the beautiful fluffy cloud. It, it looks like a hippopotamus or something. Do you do that? I, am I the only one who does that? This is a different kind of cloud. This wasn't just a rain cloud. Clouds in the Bible are very symbolic, and they're often symbolic of the glory of God. If you were to go back into your Old Testament in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, you would see this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. And if you were to flip over a couple pages to Exodus 16, you would find this. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And in Exodus chapter 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord is associated with a cloud, a unique cloud, a cloud that shows that it's not just a rain cloud, that it's a manifestation of the magnificent glory of Almighty God. In Matthew chapter 17 at the transfiguration, you remember Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain and he's there transfigured before them, Matthew records. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from God spoke, saying, This is my beloved Son. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this about his second coming. Then will appear in heaven the signs of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. What a magnificent sight it must have been. It must have been absolutely astounding to stand on that mountaintop and to see whatever this manifestation of God's glory and all of its brilliance and magnificence looked like as the Lord Jesus Christ that they had walked with for for these years in ministry, who they had seen crucified, who they were now looking at visibly, bodily in front of them, resurrected, now raised up into the sky and developed into a cloud of the glory and majesty of Almighty God and taken out of their sight. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I can't, but it must have been glorious. We're told that they're dumbfounded and they're astounded. They're, 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 they're caught just staring at the sky. And we're told that the two men in white clothing, clearly angels, appeared. And they asked the question, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? I think that's the dumbest question that anybody's ever asked. Why do you stand looking into the sky? What do you mean, why am I looking at the sky? I just saw Christ rise in the glory of God and envelop him. What am I supposed to do? Do I have a cookie? What do you do? 
stare at the sky, marveling at what you've just seen. Well, the question is a question that has a purpose. And that purpose is intended to do two things. It's intended to remind them and to redirect them. It's intended to remind them that they have no reason to actually be surprised because this is precisely what Jesus was talking about all those times when he said, I am going to the Father. I am going to leave. And where I'm going, you can't go. I am going to go away and I'm going to return to the Father. You shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said this is what was going to happen. They need to be reminded of that and they needed to be redirected. Because Christ had just given them a mission. And that mission didn't include staring at the sky for long. It included going out into all the world and making disciples of all nations. It included taking this great news of the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord out into a world of people who didn't know it and sharing it with them by the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing people's hearts and lives transformed by the power of the gospel. And so the angels intended to remind them of that and to redirect them on their mission. And they say the same Jesus will come back in the same way that you saw him go. Now Jesus is coming back. It's a historical fact that he ascended and it's an historical fact of the future that he's going to descend. It's true and it's going to happen. The only question is when. And what we're told here is that when he comes back, he's going to come back, and it's going to be the same Jesus that left is the same one who's going to return, and the way that he left is going to be the way that he returns, visibly, bodily, with clouds. Same Jesus is coming back. And you say, well, what's the significance of all this? Why does the ascension of Christ matter? I want to just give you a quick list of, of things, and we won't have time to cover them all exhaustively, but if you're taking notes, you can write them down, and you can explore them further on your own. What is the meaning? What is the significance of the ascension? Why did it need to take place? What was its purpose? Well, the first thing I want you to understand about the ascension is it was, it was a clear sign that his work on earth is complete. Jesus was saying to his disciples and to all the world, the work of redemption is done. I've accomplished everything that I set out to do when I took on human flesh in the incarnation. I've completed the mission. I've finished the task. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When Jesus is ascended to the Father, he is in essence saying, That work is done. What was started in Bethlehem ends on the Mount of Olives. In Bethlehem, the second person of the Trinity enters the world of humanity. He takes on human flesh. He sets aside the, the independent function of his deity and his divine power. And he's born of a woman. And he takes on the, the limitations of humanity and human flesh. And he becomes the remarkable God-man. And yet on the Mount of Olives at the ascension, he returns to the place from which he came. The one who was sent from the Father goes back to the Father, having fully completed the mission that he came to accomplish. Oh, what was the work that he came to do? He came to live a perfect life. He came to accomplish positive righteousness that could be imputed to me and to you. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, to be a substitutionary atonement for our sins pay our penalty that we deserved 
His work was to destroy the grip of sin and hell and Satan and the grave. His, his work was to set free for all eternity those who place their faith and trust in him. That was the work that he came to do. And on the Mount of Olives in his ascension, he's saying it's all complete. Most of that was complete at the cross and at the tomb. But those 40 days of preparing the church were critical. So his work on earth is done. So what's he doing now? Is he taking a break? Is he on vacation? Is he just kind of hanging out in heaven? Absolutely not, because just as his work on earth is complete, the ascension reminds us that his work in heaven begins. Jesus doesn't stop working on behalf of his people. His work just takes on a different form in heaven. You say, well, what's his work that he's doing up there? Well, let me give you a quick list of things that he's doing up there. Number one, he told us he's going to prepare a place for us. Isn't that what he said to his disciples? He said, if I go away... I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you might be also. Jesus had told his disciples previous to that, it's good for you that I go away. They must have really wondered. Like Philip Yancey was wondering, how could it be good for him to go away? Wouldn't it have been better for him just to stick around? But Jesus says, it's better for you to go away because I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I don't fully know what that place looks like. We can read the book of Revelation and we can look at examples of other things in the text of Scripture and we can allow our sanctified imagination to, to paint pictures in our mind. But what I do know is it's a place of perfection and beauty, a place where the glory of God reigns throughout, a place where there's no weeping and there's no crying and there's no gnashing of teeth, where there's no sin and there's no tragedy and there's no pain and there's no death. It's a place where there's no want. place where the, the highest joys that we experience in this place don't even begin to scratch the surface of the daily experience there. And he's gone to prepare that place. That's part of the work that he's up to right now. And as a Christian, that's important, isn't it? It's important for you to understand and for me to reflect on the fact that this world is not all there is. This world is, in fact, not our home. The moment we become Christians, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. We become dual citizens, citizens of the nation that we live in here, but citizens of a different kingdom, an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And he's gone to prepare a place for us where we will live forever with him. This world is not our home. This world is not the end. We fret an awful lot about things that happen down here as though it is the end, and it's not the end. Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, an eternal place for us. Whatever we deal with here is temporary at best, the good and the bad. But we have a Savior who right now is preparing a place for you. What else is he doing? Well, he's ruling over the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And after his ascension, the apostles took the gospel message and they spread it all throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And the church of Jesus Christ is established. And there are pastors and there are teachers and there are evangelists and there are people who share the gospel. But there should never be a question, who is the head of the church? The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing right now. He's ruling his church. He established it, he's sustaining it, and he rules over it. He controls the church, he directs it, he moves it. And every operation of the church of Jesus Christ 
Jesus is the source of its strength and its sustainment. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me tell you, Christian friends, I know that we live in a culture that that has got many people afraid and upset. We see a movement away from the truth of the gospel and a rejection wholesale of biblical truth. And even some hostility beginning to build in various quarters toward the church and toward the gospel and toward people who hold these views. But let me just tell you right now, there is no reason for any Christian to be handering over that matter. Not one reason at all. Christ is Lord of the church. He rules his church. And there is no government, there is no nation, there is no governor, there is no mayor, there is no president, there is no Congress that overrules the Lord Jesus Christ and can harm his church in the least bit. They only have the authority that he gives them. And if he gives them authority to persecute his church, he has a purpose in it for his church. And it's no reason to be afraid or to live in fear. We are called to speak the truth to our culture. We are called to share the gospel in the midst of a lost and dying world. But we do it with confidence and we do it with hope, not with fear. Because Christ is ruling his church and he has established it and he will see his church through to the end. Mark it. Know it. Never question that or doubt it. He's also serving as our great high priest. He's gone before the Father on our behalf. He's defending us against satanic accusation. He's guaranteeing our forgiveness. He's guaranteeing that we get mercy and grace when we approach God, not judgment. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and following, since then, the writer says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What's he talking about? Some of the ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord Jesus, our great high priest, who stands before the Father on our behalf, his bloodshed for our sin interceding moment by moment daily on our behalf that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence not with fear not with trembling not with trepidation but with hope and confidence knowing that when we come to God we'll find in him grace and mercy not judgment because we have a high priest in the Lord Jesus who this very moment intercedes for us You compare this with any other leader of any other world religion. What are they up to these days? What is Confucius up to these days? Nobody knows. What is Muhammad up to? His body's rotting in a grave somewhere. What about Krishna? Nobody knows what plans Krishna has, but we know what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling over the universe. He's ruling over his church, and he's interceding for his people and preparing a place for them. And he's got plans to come back and take us to be where he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Finally, I want you to see in his ascension, 
He's sending the Holy Spirit. It's coming soon, or I say he is coming soon. The sending of the Holy Spirit is connected with Christ's return to the Father. He said to his disciples, if I don't go back, I can't send the helper who's coming. And while it's great to have Jesus in his, in his flesh present, while it was great to be able for them to interact with him, in his flesh he could only be in one place at one time. But Jesus said, it's better for me to go away because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to not just be with you in one place at one time, but he's going to dwell in you and he's going to empower you to take thy gospel and spread it all throughout the world. My power is going to be available in you and through you everywhere at the same time by the indwelling of my spirit. It's better for you. It's better for the world that I go and send him. Jesus told his disciples, I think this is beautiful. He says, listen, I'm going, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending someone. I'm sending someone. He'll abide with you, and he will be in you. Jesus says to his disciples, my, my ascension, my departure, my departure marks his coming, and you're going to be better off. Because he's going to point you to me. He's going to bring, bring me right back to you in your mind. He's going to speak of me. He's going to show you my power. He's going to bring to you the recollection of everything that I've said. He's going to help you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to empower you. All of the promises of Christ are going to be manifest in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. If the ascension doesn't happen, the Holy Spirit doesn't come, and the New Testament ends with John's gospel. So when Pastor Donna Hutching says the ascension doesn't matter, it never happened, she's saying something pretty profound. Profoundly foolish. Profoundly false. Profoundly demonic. Well, the time is up. Our Lord Jesus' work of redemption on our behalf began with an incarnation where he stepped into human flesh and he lived the perfect life. He ultimately was arrested and crucified on a Roman cross and buried, dead, literally. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death and hell, providing a way that men and women like you, like me, can die here and yet live forever. And 40 days later, he completed his work of redemption. He blessed his disciples and he ascended to the Father. And he finished the work that he came to do. And right this very moment, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a Savior who's very much alive. Who's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, preparing a place for you, protecting you as his child in his church, empowering you to do everything that he's called you to do. The right response to that, my friends, as Christians, is to live in this world with hope and with confidence. To boldly take the gospel of Jesus and continue the commission that he gave to his disciples on that day to the ends of the earth. To continue to go wherever the Lord opens a door and share the good news of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. The culture may not want to hear it, but we're commissioned to tell it. 
And we can do that with confidence today because Christ is risen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't know him. And by know him, I mean you've never come to a place in your life where you looked yourself in the mirror and you admitted the truth that you were a rebellious person who sinned against your creator in many ways. And recognize that in your own self, in your own righteousness, in your own good works, you have absolutely no way to pay the debt for your sin. But that your only hope is that someone would take the penalty for you and that the Lord Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who did that very thing just for you. Died for you. Buried for you. Raised for you. That you might be able to turn from your sin and place your faith in what he's done for you and find in that eternal life, forgiveness of sin, a clean slate, a new citizenship. If that hasn't been the reality of your life, that needs to be today. Look to the risen Christ and find hope and find forgiveness and find eternal peace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are marvelous beyond our imagination. To think of you leaving the glory of heaven and coming to a fallen, tainted earth where you would be ultimately rejected by men, spit upon, brutalized, nailed to a cross, rejected, killed and buried. And yet you would do all of that for us. Even rising from the dead. Securing victory. Giving us hope and a confidence that when these bodies wear out and we breathe our last breath, death will not be the end for us. Eternal life awaits because you're our forerunner who's gone through death and come out the other side. And because we're in you, we too will have that same experience. We celebrate that this morning, Lord. We, we, we stand in awe that you would do that for, for people such as us. And yet that's your grace and that's your mercy, and we are forever grateful. Lord, as we celebrate this day of your resurrection, fill our hearts with joy and gratitude. May our hearts overflow with what you've done for us. Just thanksgiving. May we renew in our hearts, or by your spirit, renew in our hearts, Lord, a passion to, to pursue the commission that you called all of your disciples to. Don't let us be afraid of the world. Eradicate fear from our hearts. Give us confidence and hope, whether that be facing the world or whether that be approaching your throne of grace, knowing that we'll find their mercy and grace in our time of need. For that one that needs to know you today, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself known to her or to him in a very real and personal way today. That you would not just be words on a page or a figment of the imagination of some Bible writer, but that you would come alive in their very midst. And that they would see you for who you are and be drawn to you forever. Holy Spirit, do your work among us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.